Welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast, your source for information on hunting, fishing, and all of your outdoor passions. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast. My name is Mike Anderson, here with Ashley Sorensen. Ashley, how are you today? I'm doing great, Mike. How are you? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. We're going to talk about some shotguns today, and specifically Beretta. We have the shotgun product manager, Logan Killam, with us today. And, you know, to be honest with you, I can't think of a much better last name to be working for in a shotgun company. Logan, how are you doing today? Doing great. I appreciate you having us on. Really looking forward to this. This should be a great way to spend an hour of the morning. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Um, so can you just start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and talk about your role with Beretta, how you got, uh, how you got into the company, things like that. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that. Uh, I've been with the company just about two years now. I came over, I was previously in an optics company here in the industry. So I've been in the industry a good little while. Uh, and I'm, I'm a passionate product guy. I love to create cool new stuff. So that's what I did in my last world. That's what I'm doing here. Uh, and before even working in the industry, I was uh, grew up hunting, grew up competitive shooting, grew up kind of in that space. And so when I got a call one day for a recruiter to join the industry, I jumped on that. And then I was perfectly happy doing what I was doing. And then I saw this job posting for the Beretta Shotgun Product Manager. I'm like, passionate about Beretta, passionate about hunting, competitive shooting. This job opportunity is only going to come up you know, once in a career. And how can I miss that? So threw my name in the hat, and here I am. Just that easy. Mm-hmm. That's funny you say threw your name in the hat. They pull the name Kill Him, huh? Yep. <laughs> they did pull yeah. the name Kill Him. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I got lucky on that draw. Mm-hmm. And, and, and on top of that, I get to move down here to Gallatin. So I was in Michigan before, cold, snowy, dreary. And now I'm down here in the south. And lovely people, lovely weather, great new factory. It's what's not to love. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. The, the temperatures in the summer, I would say probably that, but. <laughs> uh, you know, but I'll tell you this. You can always go shooting when it's hot. You can always be outside doing something. When it's blowing snow and negative 20 and you can't drive on the roads and you've got to shovel out your house and the machines freeze up, no one's doing anything fun in that environment. I think he's so talking I, about I us. Trade it. Yeah. We, we can't I do any of that stuff. that's a little shade of us Fargo and North <laughs> yeah. Dakotans, eh? Right. <laughs> you know, I, I, spend... I would argue the other way, though. You know, when it's 120 degrees, nobody is going to be out there either. But, you know, if it gets to, like, negative 10, negative 20, I've got stuff that will keep me warm, and I'm I'm crazy slash stupid enough that I'm still going to grab my ice auger and poles and get out there and go fishing. Yeah. But and, and if you're set up with snow machines and ice augers and a shanty, yeah, absolutely. You can have a ton of fun out on the ice. <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, that, that Fargo, North Dakota, though, that's a hard pull. Yeah. That's, that's a tough world up there. Mm-hmm. there. There isn't a ton of people you can you can convince to move to Fargo, North Dakota. No. So, But, no, you know, the fall, it's a great place to be. I mean, uh, the waterfall and upland hunting is awful. I mean, don't don't check it out for sure. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the fall colors—that's what everybody comes for. No, but right, it, yeah. it is. It's it's a pretty cool place to be, to be honest with you. In the fall, like fall fishing's great. Um, the the waterfall pheasant hunting can be pretty fantastic. But yeah, yep. the the February time frame 
Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. good. Has the deer population bounced back from that big winter kill you guys had a couple years ago? Well, yes and no. It kind of depends on the area. Like, I, I was out hunting in the North Dakota Badlands, um, you know, so like the Medora area, that far western border. And we actually had a pretty bad winter this, this past one. So I know deer numbers are kind of down. Um, either that or I'm just not good at hunting. But um, <laughs> not, they don't have these problems in Texas. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> true. Well, kidding. no, that's not true. Texas had really? that big freeze that killed all those uh, exotics. That is right. Mm-hmm. A couple so years ago. I was reading an article about that. Yeah. Yeah. So then Texas gets it too. They, they don't kill the whitetail, but it'll knock everything else back. Regardless, you're happy to be there. Yeah, like, regardless. <laughs> and I, I, you know, before we started recording, you had mentioned you were in competitive shooting even back like in collegiate days. Yeah. And um, you used a Beretta to win. I did. I did a shot competitively for Colorado State University shooting team, which back in the day, 20 years ago, was one of the top three teams out there. And I had an opportunity to shoot a Beretta shotgun, a 682, one of our most famous models. And I won a national champion to trap shoot with it. And then the next year was an All-American with the same gun. So, yeah, I've got this incredible wow. passion for all Beretta shotguns and have competed with them and still compete with them at a high level. So you're still really competing. No, oh, yeah. I mean, how can you not? You're right. at this company. I, <laughs> I get to go to all the big shoots. You know, shot pretty well at the Grand American in Sparta, Illinois, four or five weeks ago. Looking forward to going down to Nationals in San Antonio three weeks from now. Awesome. So, absolutely. I mean, how else do you get to experience what the market's like? get to talk to end users. What are the trends? What's happening if you're not out there right. working with our customers? Mm-hmm. And also I, I bet like you're getting to test out things that you've cr- helped create. Yes. So what a neat opportunity to do, to do that. Yep. So I actually brought prototype shotguns to the trap shoot. And so I get to stand in a line and have this gun and people stop and look at it and go, what is that? And I get to go, oh, you want to check it out? And then I get to see their feedback. And that just turns into our product development cycle and how we create new stuff. Awesome. That's very cool. Do you have to like have people sign NDAs so they won't talk about it? Or do you just like let them generate buzz on what's coming up? Yeah, I kind of like to let generate buzz. I mean, there's two kind of tracks. There's the super quiet, super secret. We don't tell anybody anything until we're ready to launch. But that can lead you down wrong paths. It can lead you to kind of that internal design loop. Uh, or there's the, hey, look, we're going to launch this thing anyway. We want to interact with customers. We want to be a little bit more free and open. And that's sort of the Beretta tract. You know, shot, shotgun's a shotgun. Uh, while I love shotguns and I love to innovate, a shotgun had cartridge and a shotgun hasn't changed meaningfully, let's say, since the invention of the screw and choke 30 years ago. So we change colors. We change stock dimensions. We add little features. So what what's what's there to hide? I mean, we want to get that feedback. We want people to see it, get excited about it and see their faces light up or not. You know, Hey, here's this thing. And people go, Ooh, wee, I don't know about that. Listen. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Listen to your yeah, customer. What yeah. is uh, what is one thing you think that separates Beretta apart from the rest? Uh, if we're, if we're just talking, if we're talking shotguns, uh, it's really the manufacturing capabilities between here in the U.S. and in Italy. Uh, I, I wish, I would so dearly wish that we could take every serious shotgun user to Italy to see the factory because you would just not believe that industry around building shotguns. 
from the assembly lines and all the people and all the infrastructure to the machining centers, to the testing, to the R&D, to the woodworking lab, just the way it goes from raw blocks of steel in one door and raw chunks of wood to finished beautiful packaged guns that are perfect out the back door, that's incredible. And I've been in the industry, and I know other factories do this, and other factories make guns. But the scale and the grandeur and the location and the history, I think that's what people respect about it. It's the quality, it's the history, it's the longevity of those guns. It's just they've been around forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, touch on that longevity a bit because your, your company story is pretty interesting. Yeah, it's really wild. So the company was founded at least as far back as 1500, so over 500 years ago. But the early earliest documentation is a receipt for barrels sold to the Italian army from 1526. So we're coming up on the 500th known anniversary of the company. And back in the back in the days, you know, private companies weren't allowed to make guns. Only the government was allowed to build guns. And so but Beretta was building the barrels to support that industry. And so that went on for hundreds of years. Uh, and then, you know, more so that that went on for forever. They were making guns, they were making machinery, they were producing stuff. And of course there's spotty records, right? Some periods of time they have great records, some periods of times not so much. Uh, but then sort of the modern era, you know, Beretta has been making shotguns since after the second world war. Uh, so they've been making shotguns for 70, almost 80 years now. And they've just had complete iteration after iteration after iteration. And every little step has gotten better and better and better. New technologies, new coatings, new materials, just one little step at a time. And as that stuck those little steps, the factory and the company and the footprint grew and grew and grew. And so that's that great heritage, the innovation, the knowledge. And there's something to be said about the Italian system where most of the people I work there have worked their entire careers and they've worked and and their fathers have worked there and their grandfathers and their great grandfathers. And there are people that I work with in Italy whose seventh just seven generations have worked at the Breda factory. That's wild. Yeah. That's just wild. It, before America was even, you know, founded, yeah. these folks go back that far. Hmm. So the, the knowledge and the history and the photos on the walls. It's just a, an emotional experience, really, when you go to visit. That's the only way I can describe it. If you're into shotguns, if you're into manufacturing, making cool things, the emotional connection you have with that place, and then it follows through to the products. And people pick up a gun and they look at it and they go, wow, you can really feel the quality, feel the history, feel the innovation. Yeah, that's very that's cool. Awesome. Very cool. And I can remember the first time that I ever shot a Beretta, too. So There you go. Yeah. I... Uh, you know, I grew up with a Remington 870 Express, and I I have a I have a soft spot for that gun. I've shot so many different species with it, from like squirrels to turkey to geese to ducks to even a deer with it. And you know, I I thought like you know, it's it's definitely not the most expensive gun, but you just can't pry this thing out of my hands. And I was. Uh, I was over Thanksgiving with my family and 
we're kind of a redneck family. So we, we <laughs> ate Thanksgiving and then we went out to shoot some clay pigeons and I didn't have my gun with, but, but my uncle, he handed me his and it was a Beretta and I shouldered it the first time. And I was just like, wow, this thing is smooth. And then I think I hit my first like four or five clays with it. And I was like, wow. Yeah, this is this is something special right here. So, and and that memory is. is definitely stuck with me. That's awesome. Yep, and there's take nothing away from the 870. That's an amazing design by an amazing guy, an amazing company, and it was my first shotgun too. Cool. But you, you as we talk about in the shotgun world, there's sort of four different categories of shotgun. Right, you've got your entry level pumps, you know, under five hundred dollars, just working guns. And you've kind of got this middle level section of guns that are hunting guns, but they're on the verge of competition. And then you've got your class of guns that are great for competition. So $5,000. And then you've got your high end, you know, Krieghoffs, Parazis, Berettas that sort of occupy that twelve dollars to $20,000. And what we always say is if you step up each of those guns, you'll pick up an extra bird per hundred. So if you're shooting a 95 with your 870, by doing nothing else, you step up one level of gun, you're gonna shoot a 96. You step up another gun, you're gonna shoot a 97. You step up to the best, you're gonna shoot 98s. So that that little extra refinement, that little balance, a little better barrel technology, better chokes, better trigger, usually means one target each as you climb up. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot so about confidence scale. too. You know, you just, yep. you just pick that up and it's just like kind of instant confidence. I know that was for me when I was out, uh, you know, shooting with my family, it was like, I know I'm going to crush this now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I'd like you to talk to us a little bit about, um, about your lineup of shotguns. So let's, let's start with like the Upland category. Sure. So Upland category really have two worlds, right? There's the semi-autos and there's the over and unders. And it's really sort of your your preference about are you weight and recoil sensitive? Are you looking for something that you can beat up? Are you looking for something fancy? So uh, the way I like to always like to talk to potential customers is, hey, what are you going to do with it? Upland. Okay, cool. Uh, are you more interested in something that's light and easy to carry? Or are you more interested in something that's going to be a little bit fancier? Then I kind of like to steer them into, hey, if you're looking for something that's going to be fancy, it's going to be our over and unders. Uh, It's going to be the silver pigeon or the ultra ligero. Uh, And then I kind of talk to them about, hey, what type of barrel length do you want? Uh, What's your stock dimension? How fancy a gun are you interested in? Kind of point them towards silver pigeons or ultra ligeros. If they're saying, hey, I'm really looking for a semi-auto, I want that third round, I want a little bit faster swinging gun, I want something that's maybe a little bit easier to carry, a little bit more affordable, then I'll steer them towards the Uplands or the Explorer Action or even the A300 that we make here in the U.S. So we just we just make such a huge lineup of everything from the U.S.-made guns that are under 1,000 all the way up to our new Silver Pigeon 5, which is just an incredible gun with an incredible piece of wood on it but it's going to be kind of in that four to $5,000 range. And then of course there's, and there's the custom stuff that comes out of Italy and Italy's special handmade factory that sky's the limit. I mean, we just mm-hmm. sold a gun at last year's SCI. that was over $300,000. Wow. Yeah. It's incredible. Huh. So it's, are you selling offer, your house, Mike? You yeah. Know, 
I think I'm going to keep my house. Okay. I don't, okay. I don't know if the wife would approve right. of that no, decision. No. Hey, honey, no. I just bought the best shotgun ever, but we got to move out of our house. No. But yeah, we're living out of the van. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I mean, I got I got a Toyota Tundra. It's got a pretty good size back seat. I mean, family of four. I mean, we can drive in it. Right. So, But, I mean, we'll, incredible we'll that people can custom, <laughs> you know. At yeah. that level. That's, yeah, that is super yes. cool. Um, dive in a little more about that that new Silver Pigeon you guys have. Yeah, happy to. So Silver Pigeon 5, um, that is, so we have kind of like an F-150 has XL, XLT, Lariat, et cetera. If people are familiar with that. Well, we do a very similar thing with the Silver Pigeon, which has, the Silver Pigeon um, is a great family of guns. It's been out since the 70s. The mechanism is just incredible. The way they have industrialized building that, they make it extremely durable, extremely long-lasting, easy to repair, easy to work on. And then we step up the family, better grades of wood, better wood finishes, uh, better engraving on the receiver, different stock dimensions. So we kind of build platform, build a category just like your Ford F-150 does. So the Silver Pigeon 3 is brand new out, just came out this year. you, the advantages are you get a really pretty gun, with really, really pretty engraving that we offer both in field hunting configurations. So a little bit lighter weight, a little bit lower stock dimensions. And then we also offer a sporting clays version for someone who's looking for a fancy gun with great barrel technology with the adjustable stock that they can take and show off shooting sporting clays too. So that's our newest top of the end silver pigeon family. Uh, before you step into the really, really fancy hand engraved stuff. Okay. What's, and then uh, that is something that uh, Shields is, is looking at. Mm-hmm. What's What's your personal gun of choice when you're headed out shooting like pheasants and stuff? Well, that's a very it's a very it's a great question. It's a very personal question, and it, so much of it depends on where you hunt, what type of hunting are you doing, pheasant hunting. While you're chasing the same bird, is it is it a game farm where you're walking on manicured fields? Are you busting through the cattails in South Dakota, really working your butt off? You're not going to want to take the same gun for each application. So I have an old Silver Pigeon 2 that if I'm going on like a game farm walk, a nice easy walk, or it's going to be nice weather, I'll take that. But if it's going to be I'm working hard, I'm chasing through brush and cattails and over the fences i actually take the extreme i'll take the big three and a half inch gun because if i need to use it to push brush out of the way if i need to use it to cross a muddy creek i can stick that thing in the mud i can use it to help climb a hill it's just such a working tool that it's going to function when i need it to and i don't mind getting it all scratched up because it's going to take it mm-hmm. so i'll take both guns and kind of look at the terrain look at the weather and be like, ah, fancy one today or ah, (laughs) the dirty one today. No, I mean, that's many people do that. Yeah. That's a great answer. You know, you just kind of have to have the right tool for your environment. You know, if you're, if you're going to hunt a game farm and you hunting pointers and they're going to be like, you can pretty much reach out and grab them. Like you don't, you don't need to reach out and touch them. But like, if you're, if you're bumping sloughs, like you never know when that bird's going to get up, you might have to shoot a significantly farther distance than you would in other situations. So yeah, I I think that's a great answer. Yeah. It's used the right tool for the job. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever, whatever's going on, 
that you might run into. Make sure you've got the right thing in your hand. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say that's a pretty good segue into your waterfall line of shotguns. So how about you uh, dive a little bit into that? Yes, the waterfowl hunting, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with the traditional camouflaged, um, larger chambered, right? You can take your over and unders waterfowl hunting and plenty of people do it. And that's a great, it's a great way to bring something fancy into the duck blind with you. But if we kind of stick to the bread and butter out of a boat with a dog banging around in the bottom of your, your truck, then I'm going to kind of stick to the American made a 300, uh, which is a gun that's going to retail for right around that thousand dollars. Uh, so that's made here in the States in the Gallatin facility here. It's a three inch chamber. It's, it's the synthetic workup. So there's no wood to worry about. You know, the parts are coated in corrosion resistant coatings. Uh, and that's a great gun. If you don't need the three and a half inch chamber, if you're going to get into a situation where you're going to be goose hunting with it, if you're going to be taking pass shooting opportunities where you need that three and a half inch, then I would move over to the extreme, uh, lineup of guns which is made in italy and that the biggest differentiation is the three and a half inch chamber uh, a little bit better barrel technology and when i say barrel technology the way as the shot goes off the way the barrel constricts the shot column before it leaves the gun the extreme does a better job of containing that shot column so as the pattern leaves the gun you get a better more consistent pattern get fewer flyers and you get better downrange accuracy. And so that extreme family is just a great all around gun. If you're looking to spend some higher money, uh, but it's something that's going to last you. It's going to have the soft touch grips. So if your hands are wet and cold, you're going to have a hold of it. Uh, so that's another great option. If you're looking for kind of a uh, upper end price point solution. Love it. Yeah, so those are kind of our two families. The A300 made here, the Extreme, which is the A400 Extreme, uh, made in Italy. Perfect. So, you got any good stories for us with uh, with that bunches. A400? <laughs> bunches. I did. Right, I, perfect. I, a bunches. I just came back last week from a Southeast Alaska bear and duck hunt. Wow. That was, yeah, quite an adventure. It was lucky enough to take my father. He's still a very active sportsman. He and I went up there uh, with Alaskan coastal outfitters. And it's this incredible thing where you fly in to Cake, Alaska, K-A-K-E, this little tiny fishing town of 300 people. You got to take one of those small turboprop airplanes to get out to it. You know, this local gal picks us up in her truck, drives us down to the dock. And here we get met by this cabin cruising working fishing boat and we cruise the inland waterways of that southeast alaska that's that chain of islands and land that kind of stick out south of juno down towards seattle and we put around in this boat for 10 days chasing bears chasing ducks catching fish just if any if you haven't if no one's experienced southeast alaska it's something that's got to be on your bucket list you got to go north over the arctic circle to hunt caribou and you got to do Southeast Alaska for bears because it's, it's just a wild way of fishing. So, you know, seeing seals and sea lions, and bald eagles flying around and then carrying a rifle and walking up these streams that are running so thick with salmon that you worry about being knocked out. 
because you've got a <laughs> five pound salmon slamming right. into the back of your legs and you're walking over these slippery rocks, you know, all trying to be quiet and control your scent, trying to chase bears. It's, it's just a hoot. Yeah, wow. that sounds so, like a pretty yeah. incredible experience right there. Did it you was. get a bear? No, I did not. Mm. Did no, you have any encounters? Oh, yes. Encounters for sure. You're going to run into bears. It's such a, a thick, lush, wild area. There's hardly nobody out there. I mean, in 10 days, I'll give you an example. In 10 <laughs> days on this boat, putting around, we saw one boat in the distance. And only saw two aircraft fly over the entire time. Wow. That was the total sum total of our human interaction for 10 days. That's crazy. In right. you know, in today's day and world, that's just like almost unfathomable for people. Yep. And like off the you grid. forget. <laughs> yeah. You forget when you're living here in the lower forty-eight that places like that exist. And we're hunting on Kuyu Island. And it's a gigantic island. And I think there's two towns, three towns. I mean, there's not not a road system. It's fly in, fly out. People live by a boat. I mean, to those folks, a boat is like a car to us. Mm-hmm. It's the only way you get around. So there's there's bears aplenty. It's just finding, you know, an, a mature male in the right situation. And we just never connected with uh, the right critter. Okay. So what was your strategy on going after these bears? Did you, is it just like walking through the creek so you could see distances or you? Yes. Okay. You got it. You, you hit it right on the head. So you get up there. Of course, just like so much big game, they're active first thing in the morning and last thing in the evening. Mm-hmm. And they're concentrated in the rivers because the salmon are spawning. So Kuyu Island, it's big, but it's kind of long and not very wide. So the streams or rivers that come off of it, you could cross in a pair of ditch boots. I mean, they're okay. not, it's not big water, but it's filled with fish. I mean, thousands and thousands of fish, fish shoulder to shoulder, collected in these pools where, you know, a dip net, you would catch a hundred pounds of fish. It's, it's, Gosh, if you've no. never, if no one's, if you've never seen a salmon run, you have to go and check it out. Cause you, until you're there, you're standing in it. You just don't appreciate how many fish and the smell and the experience and the noise they make. Like if you've got people who relate to this, if you've ever been in the deer woods in November hunting deer and you have those squirrels and there will be squirrels that sounds like deer, that little ch- 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 and you think it's a deer walking, but you turn around and mm-hmm. it's a squirrel bearing an acorn. Drive you crazy. I am all too familiar with that. <laughs> Everybody has, everybody knows that, right? I had the same experience with salmon sounding like a bear. Okay. Where you're sitting on the edge of these creeks and you can really only look one way or another. Maybe there's another creek. Maybe there's pools out here. And the salmon will make this splash, 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 splash sound that sounds exactly like a bear walking through the woods, rocking through the water, trying to catch these fish. Interesting. And the other cool thing is, is when a bear comes for a salmon, all the salmon scatter. So they make this enormous racket because you've got the bear splashing, the fish splashing. And it's like, you know, all right, bear, you need to look that way or you need to go over there. Mm-hmm. But also the fish will just do this for no particular reason whatsoever. So you'll be sitting on the edge of the stream and all of a sudden you'll hear this gigantic commotion upriver. You'll hop up, run around the corner. Nothing there. The fish are just screwing around. 
So I, I got such a chuckle out of that because it was exactly like deer woods and squirrels, but here it's bear woods and fish. Mm-hmm. Just a riot. Yeah, the next time I go into the deer stand and I hear those squirrels, I'm going to think of this story from you. <laughs> yeah. How about I, the? Oh, go ahead. Well, I've been to Alaska, and it's yeah, not not to that part, but it is beautiful, and yeah, the, the salmon it is crazy. I can't believe there weren't other people fishing there then. Nope. It seemed like a great opportunity to, yeah. But it was fishing wouldn't do it. I mean, right? No, it's it's it'd be hooking, right? It's, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say yeah. it's, no, it's yeah. catching yeah. at that yeah. point. And the rivers are so small. Right. The fish fish are only running maybe a mile inland. So I'm familiar with thinking of, you know, the salmon runs in these giant, big raging rivers where they swim hundreds of miles in to do their spawning. But that's not how it is in Southeast Alaska because the streams are so small and they're so short. You know, these fish swim in a mile, which is nothing to a fish. They do their spawning and then they they hang out and die. And so the banks are just covered in dead fish covered in dead fish like you can't describe yeah. hundreds and obviously they don't smell that great mm-hmm. and so there's hundreds of fish in the water there's hundreds of dead fish out of the water but there's the eagles and the ravens and the crows are all over the place and there's a chance of seeing a wolf we didn't but they're in there as well running around and so it's just to see that sort of environment that ecology watching what happens is something special yeah they like turn into like zombies these yeah. um, yes. salmon it's like they are just like swimming aimlessly like towards their end of their life you don't want to catch one of those i don't think but no you really Mm-mm. you don't want to catch any of them because as soon as they make contact with that fresh water yeah they start to die and rot disintegrate yep they do yeah and so a, you, if you can catch them in the ocean concept. yes it is a crazy concept but they're they're swimming upland they they do their spawning and then they they're just a snack. Hmm. And then they and then they float down and back out into the water and the halibut and the rockfish are sucking them up and turning them into more halibut and salmon and rockfish. Yeah, it's really neat. So moral of the story, you still have a bear on your list. I, I have an Alaskan bear on the list. Okay, I've, I've been lucky enough to take a couple of Colorado black bears. Oh, nice. Okay. And did you say you were you were hunting ducks up there too? We did. So it was kind of one of those mixed bags where you take both a rifle and a shotgun as well as all your fishing stuff. And you go up and you kind of take whatever the environment gives you. So if you happen to shoot a bear your third or fourth day, you've still got six days left. Well, then you switch to fishing, you switch to the duck hunting, and you kind of fill out the rest of the trip that way. So okay. I got to do a little bit of duck hunting. Uh, but because I never tagged out on the bear, and that was the sort of the, the key goal to chase after, I didn't get to spend a ton of time doing the ducks. But I got to at least get out there, throw the decoys out a few times, sit on the rocky shore, and give it a shot. Okay. And and what species were you targeting up there? So that time of year, it's it's tough to say. Because it's small inland waterways, we had everything from mallards and pintails come by to widgeon. And then when you were out on the rocky points, a little bit farther out, you had all the sea ducks. So I saw a lot of scoters, some old squaws. Um, those were mostly the, uh, we did see a flight of canvasbacks come by. So we saw a good bag of ducks in the area, but they weren't really in any volumes. 
You know, you'd okay. see a line of scoters. You'd see 20 or 30 scoters in a flock messing around. You'd see half a dozen puddle ducks. So it's enough to chase and it's fun to chase them, but it's not a migration period yet. It was still days were in the 60s, nights in the 40s. So they're not being pushed. They're not flocking up yet from the mm. north. And what sort of time frame is migration if you're hunting them in Alaska? I'm not an expert, but from what the guide was telling me, that they really don't start moving hard until mid to end of November into December. Okay. So when it really turns cold and nasty up north and they really get those big storms that push them out of the Aleutians, push them out of the interior, that they really start coming down. Because the the thing about Alaska that you don't realize until you're in it is just how much water there is. So the previous year, in 2022, I did a self-guided caribou hunt with a bunch of buddies up over the Arctic Circle. And we drove up the Hall Road. And the amount of water and the amount of space, it's just it's just unimaginable for someone who, like me, I grew up in Colorado. I grew up in the Midwest. You don't see that kind of terrain, that kind of water. You guys kind of have some of that where the prairie pothole region, it's just countless square miles of little farm ponds and fields and marshes and bogs. Alaska has that, but it's hundreds of thousands of square miles. And every one of them has got 10 ducks in it. And that doesn't seem like a lot until they all start to freeze and all those ducks start to funnel together. And that's what makes that California and that, that coastal waterfowl hunting so good. And they move right through that Southeast Alaska. So it's just kind of a wild area. Yeah. I tell you what, if I keep doing these podcasts and the guests talk about Alaska, I'm just <laughs> not going to be able to stand it anymore. <laughs> you gotta I think go. there's been like you gotta go. three in the past five that have talked about Alaska. And I have not been there yet, but it's definitely high on the bucket list. I also added Italy to have a tour. Mm, yeah, yes. That would also be pretty sweet. Which I'm also wondering, what are, is being hunted in Italy? That's a great question. So my counterpart, who is the Italian product manager, mm-hmm. uh, is a great guy, also a hunter, which is a really great that he and I can sort of have that connection. Uh, and they do a bunch, he does a bunch of chamois, stag hunting in the Alps. So in that mountain region to the extreme north of Italy, still has great populations of big game, tar, chamois, uh, stag, and then just southeast of the factory in Venice is the most famous European duck hunting marsh. Where it's, I have not done it, but I have talked to people who have done it and I've seen it. Imagine you're in Venice, the gondolas, the boats, the history. They pick you up from Venice in a duck boat and take you down the coast to the hunting marshes. Imagine right. the discrepancy. Yeah, Here's that is old world cool. yeah. Venice, the Italians, the, the fashion, you're getting dressed up in waders and a shotgun and hopping into a duck boat in Venice to drive south, to motor south, to go duck hunting. You know, I, th- I think that's very undersold, you know, because yes, say, say you get a couple that wants to go to Venice for like a, a destination wedding or whatever. Yeah. Or something yeah, like that. It's like. Honey, you go check out the fashion stuff, and I'm going to go shoot some ducks. Like, I bet yeah. not a lot of people know that that's an option. Right. Nope. Well, that's why I'm like, I, didn't, I didn't know it was a thing. That's what I was but thinking. Is. How, how is this, you know, plant there, Beretta, you know, the, and then it really, you know, in Italy? 
Yep. So, wow. That they have ducks, and the ducks got to go winter somewhere. And hey, people like Venice, ducks like Venice. It makes total sense, right? You know, it does. (laughs) Got the water, you've got the history. Mm-hmm. Great food. I'm, I'm guessing. Food. The, I'm guessing the ducks <laughs> don't quite care as much about the history, but um, yeah, Probably that not. climate though. I've been, I've yeah. been there, liking it for sure. I don't so, know. Maybe they're like city pigeons. Maybe they like to go in at night and tour the the architecture and see the gondolas. Right. Yeah. Swim under the bridges. You, you never know. Yeah. yeah. Never know. I mean, I imagine there are quite a few ducks swimming around those channels and whatnot oh, there. Sure. So yeah, yeah, I bet there are too. I've not been yet. That's that's high on my list of uh, European hunts to do. Yeah, I bet. And then what? So like, what about the big game over there? Do you, is it similar to like a Colorado elk hunt, or do you have any idea on I, that? From what I understand and the images I've seen, they are steeper mountains, but there's less of them. So where Colorado? Let's just talk Colorado because that's where I grew up and that's where I know. You know, the whole central spine of Colorado is pretty much public land broken up into all the game units. And so mm-hmm. there's 100, 400 miles of mountains from north to south that's all public. And you put in for a tag and you draw and you chase whatever you've got a tag for. Italy is much smaller. So it's smaller mountain ranges and they're limited by the border. Right, So the Alps start in Italy, go up into Switzerland and then over back into Germany. So they only get half the mountain to work with before they hit the international border. They can't go any farther. And then their game units, from what I understand, are much, much smaller. So you only get one ridge, basically. Uh, And then the same, you apply for tags, and you can apply for chamois and tar and stag, males and females, just like the U.S. But then your region is small, but you get a long season. It's not like Colorado where you only get a seven or 10 day season. There have the whole 90 day season of which to take that in or 70 days or whatever it is. So they're a little bit more flexible in when they can go hunting, but it's a smaller area. So like my, my counterpart, he's had this family cabin in this same valley for like three generations. And they've hunted the same ridge for three generations. So he knows it intimately. He knows when the critters are going to be there and when they're not, but it's a small spot. So similar, but with some idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. Very interesting concept. Yep. Just different land management rules. Yeah. Interesting. Very cool. So Logan. All right. Well, we I, I got one more question. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I, I got one more. A little too early. Sorry. Yeah. We have a product development guy. We can't not ask him about like new innovations, anything that he can clue us in on. Well, so Beretta does some fun stuff. So we have, I kind of like to think of it in three buckets of innovation. Uh, Bucket one is like the small, easy, really kind of fun stuff. So new camouflage colors, new barrel lengths, uh, kind of new things to keep the product line refreshed and interesting. So like for this fall, we've got a couple of special makes uh, just for this year. We're only going to do small runs of guns, like 500 or 1,000. We're going to make them one time, and that'll be it. And we're doing that every year so that people who are into a shotgun will get something that's kind of exclusive and kind of rare. So we do quite a bit of those. Then we do kind of quite a bit of of middle-sized projects. Like so, for instance, the A300 that we make here in the States, we haven't had a wood stock version 
in many years. And even when we had one, it was only really for field hunting. So with the team of engineers, we've been developing our own sporting clays wood stock. So that'll be coming out uh, next year, probably for NRA. Uh, so that's kind of new and innovative, um, not because it's new to the world, but because we haven't had it here in the U.S. We haven't had a U.S. made shotgun stock in wood in a long time. So that's sort of the, some of the new stuff coming. And then sort of on the big product development side, so that's brand new platforms, brand new gauges, brand new ground up designs. We've got a couple of things coming. Um, some stuff out of the Italian side that'll be very cool, very interesting on the waterfowl side, um, as well as on the upland side. There's some great stuff coming there. The competition side is really where we've been focusing heavily. So we're going to have new competition shotguns out for next year, uh, a couple different price points. So we've got what what I'm really most passionate about right now on the competition side is really making products that are catering to high school athletes, the collegiate athletes. Right now in the U.S. in competitive shooting, the the 4-H clubs, the SCTP is absolutely booming. Those shooting organizations are growing like crazy. The interest and the involvement that we're seeing from student athletes and from parents is bringing so much new energy into this industry. And we're coming out with new products specifically for those athletes. And that's what I'm really, really happy about. And so we've got this new over and under shotgun that's designed for sporting clays, designed for skeet, but it's at a price point where you can have it and, and give it to one of those athletes and have them really have a competitive shotgun that's perfect for them, that's sized for them, that they can kind of grow and evolve and get into the Beretta lineup. So that's going to be in that twenty-five dollars to $3,000 price point. And then as they improve, they can work up to that five and up above as they grow in their, their career track. So that's where I'm really, really happy on the competitive side is that we've got products specifically for those folks coming. And on the U.S. side, we're going to have some innovation out. That I can't say, but we're, 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 always, looking at adding, no. <laughs> yeah, we're always looking at adding new features. And cool. the market is evolving. And there are technologies out there that can be added and incorporated into shotgun shooting um, that I think will help grow this industry and give people another reason to look at the shotgun and think about it differently. Everyone sort of thinks, ah, shotgun limited to 40 yards, big spread of pellets. Nah, it's been that way forever. The ammunition side, working with the shotgun side, is really sort of pushing the bounds of ethical hunting. You know, used to be 20 years ago, a turkey range was limited about 40 yards, but then the new turkey loads start coming out, and we've got people pushing ethical shooting distances out to 50, out to 60 yards. That same ammunition development is happening, not just on the turkey shooting, but on the waterfowl side. So now you've got ammo that's more than capable, but you've still got a relatively immature aiming solution. So we're kind of lurking around, how do we aim a shotgun better to shoot it farther, shoot it more ethically with better patterns? So that's where kind of we're, we're working on. Interesting. You know, yeah. I'd, I'd love to ask you a bunch more questions, but I don't want to pry <laughs> and get you in too much trouble. Sure, yeah. So I think we'll just have to stay tuned and, and uh, stay tuned. keep up on those announcements. That's exciting, even about um, the next generation of, of kids. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yep. students getting involved. into it. Yeah. Yep. 
really bringing that positive outlook mm-hmm. on the shooting and sports. The sport, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And there's now colleges that have uh, sponsor scholarships. So it's now completely possible that you can be an excellent competitor, go to university, have it completely paid for or partially paid for, and then come out of there and go on to being an Olympian. Uh, one of the guys I went to school with from 20 years ago is now an Olympian. Wow. He's a guy I competed against at 18, and now he's gone on to be an Olympian, and I've gone on to build the shotguns that he's going to be using. So it's it's a it's a great kind of network oh, and experience you grow up into. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You never know. You may end up working at Shields. may end up working at Beretta or right. any of the other companies in the industry. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Life is funny that way. A hundred percent. So, all right. Now. Uh, yeah, good? I'm good now. Sorry. Okay. Thank you. I apologize for cutting you <laughs> off there. And I'm very glad you spoke up because that was a, that was a good We're not get, letting him get off this easy without I giving know. us a Kevin, little yeah, something. Yeah. Easy there, Logan. So, but yeah, we greatly appreciate your time. Um, you know, thanks for talking to us about Beretta, getting us excited about what's out there, what's coming and, uh, you know, best of luck with your hunting seasons and your product Thank development. You. Yeah, you too. Thanks to Shields for being such a great partner in the industry and really supporting the conservation and supporting those folks that uh, are out there making their living with the outdoors. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So if anybody's interested in uh, in the Beretta line of shotguns, you know, head to your local Shields store. Visit us online at shields.com. Uh, we'll have that linked in the description of this podcast. And uh Thanks for listening and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Stay tuned for future segments and visit our social media pages, Shields Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram for daily updates.